points for tonight. Sex isn't about sex. Sexual immorality isn't about sex. Sex is about redemption. So sex isn't about sex. Sexual immorality isn't about sex. And sex is about redemption. Why don't you stand up? Here is what the word of the Lord is to you tonight. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with other men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards or slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. And you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Paul begins to kind of interact with a pretend critic to answer some questions. I have a right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have a right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food's for the stomach and stomach for the food and God will destroy them, bro- will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members or a part of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Therefore, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside of his body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are now temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received um, from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Let's pray. Lord, even in the past 30 minutes of being here tonight, seeing my friends, I've heard stories of how you have been at work in amazing ways. You are moving among our midst. Um, You are softening hearts. You are using us in the lives of our friends. Um, You are changing us, and we thank you for that. And Lord, uh, we, we know from the size of the group tonight that there are many of us who are very anxious tonight, who are feeling like their head is falling under the water with schoolwork. And so we pray for our friends too, that you would meet them in that, that you would bless them, that you would teach them to trust you in the midst of the pressure. Be with us tonight. Teach us about sex. Uh, Teach us what it points about you. We ask this in your name, Lord. Amen. I just read the Bible. Uh, A lot of y'all are familiar with the Bible. But even if you've grown up in the church, I bet you believe a little bit of the stereotype that's been thrown upon the Bible when it comes to sex, that it's prudish, that it's, um, that it's naive, that it's like the parent sex talk. It's got its head buried in the sand and it's, it would be astonished if it knew what sexuality was really like for you or that it's incredibly idealistic, that it's so unattainable that it's kind of, yeah, that's awesome. Nice painting, but I don't think that I could ever experience that. That's too far away from me. And from where I do life. And so it seems irrelevant and it seems out of reach. But the way the Bible approaches sexuality, the way God 
approaches sexuality is the way a fireman or a policeman approaches a bad accident on the highway. So, and you got to hear this before we talk about it. You got to hear that when God talks about sex, when he talks about your sexuality, he's approaching the topic the way a fireman approaches the wreck on the interstate, which is this. They pull over, they get out of their car, they walk up to that mangled, tangled mass of steel that you are trapped inside of. And they stoop down and they put their head in and they have to orient you, right? They wake you up and they say, wake up, are you awake, are you awake? And they describe what's happened to you so that you don't freak out. They say, you've been in a bad wreck, but I'm a fireman, I'm a policeman, we're going to get you out of this, we're here. And then they begin to take hold of you, they begin to move the wreckage aside and grab hold of you and pull you out and get you back on your feet and restore you and heal you. Now, in that scenario, is there room for a word of caution or warning or correction from that fireman or policeman to the person who's just destroyed their car? Yeah, absolutely. Is there, in that scenario, a place for excruciating pain to happen? If your arm is broken, if your leg is broken, and you got a fireman pulling on you to extract you, to save you, absolutely there's going to be excruciating pain. It's the same way as God approaches us in our sexual wreckage, past, present, future. Uh, He orients you. He describes what has happened. He begins to take hold of you and pull you out. It will feel painful. It will feel disorienting. Um, But the question before we look at the passage is, are you ready for that? Are you ready to endure a little bit of pain in the coming weeks and in the rest of your life? Are you willing to endure the pain knowing that you are being dragged to safety? And to healing. Are you willing to entertain the possibility. Perhaps God is not approved. Perhaps he's about life. And preserving your life. So that's my question to you. You have the decision of whether you want to go there or not. If you want to go there. Then keep listening. Because the first point. That we're going to talk about. Is that sex is not about sex. Um, Sex is about God. That seems super fundamental. But here's what I'm talking about. When I say that sex isn't about sex, what I mean is that sex isn't just about orgasms or intimacy or nakedness or fun or entertainment. It is about those things. Um, Those are great fruits and benefits of sex, but it's not what sex is about. That's That's not the purpose or the design of sex. Those are the fruits of sex. Sex is about God. And I know how crazy and confusing this sounds to our ears, mine included, But this sounds crazy and confusing to our ears because of the sexual insanity that all of us are in the midst of. Um, And the sexual insanity is this. We and everyone around us has made sex all about sex. Here's how this happened. You You can listen to how a generation talks about sex. And you can look at their language. And you can find out what that generation believes sex is. Uh, If you go back maybe 60 or 70 years to the World War II or beginning to be Vietnam era hippie generation, the way they talked about sex, they called it making love. That was kind of the common lingo about sex. We make love. And so love was this kind of mysterious, glorious thing that is created when two people who love each other have sex together. Something new happens. Something is created in that. And it's about love. 
That's the way they talked about it. I'm not saying that this is right. I'm saying this is how that generation, your parents, talk about sex, making love. Then you push on and you get into the 80s. This is kind of when Anna and I were growing up. And the language shifts to now being this language of sex is something you have. You have sex or you do it, right? You have sex or you do it. But still, sex was something that two people shared together. It's something that you had. It was this mysterious, beautiful thing out there, there for the taking. And you had it or you did it. Then you push on into the 90s. In the earlier 90s, it was actually getting laid. Sex is now not something that we do together or something I make with you. But it's passive. Getting laid. It's something that happens to me. Sex is something you do for me now. Sex is is shifting from anything about love or togetherness or other people. And it's now becoming something about something that you do for me. I get laid. And then it becomes about hooking up. This odd transactional language, like when your computer battery is getting low, you hook it up to get a little more power. But you see how the language is slowly becoming less and less personal and more and more transactional. It's shifting more and more from something that happens together with two people to something that's really just about me or something that's really just about itself. And so in the hookup culture, sex is just about horniness and biological urges and testosterone and estrogen that need to be leveled out by a little bit of a release. And now, uh, you, you know the lingo better than I do, but now there's a little bit of an issue where there's not much of a common vernacular or vocabulary for talking about sex because it's so casual, it's so meaningless and weightless that it doesn't even warrant its own vocabulary anymore. And so uh, what happens is this, Esquire magazine uh, recently did a story about a bunch of women and men in Manhattan. These are rich people, they work on Wall Street. But they were looking at kind of the current tender, the tender culture, where you kind of look at a bunch of pictures and swipe whether you like them or whether you don't like them. And it sets you up with people. And uh, they were asking these women, they said, can we see your phone? Because we want to know how people, like in their unscripted moments, how they talk about sex today. And so these women all handed over their phones and they went through their text history. And uh, gone are the days of love sonnets and poems and songs. And have a, the days that have arrived is this. This lady's text uh, from a new acquaintance she met in a bar the night before said, do you want to come over an F? That was it. And that was the least graphic of the ones that they got. This is someone she's talked to for 10 or 15 minutes at a party, probably both drunk. And that's the level of intimacy and connection and love and everything else. Do you want to come over an F? I'm on my lunch break. That's where this has gone. That's how sex, I'm not saying that our parents' sex was about God or anything holier than it is now, but I'm saying sex used to be about something and now it's not about anything. It's so casual, it's so meaningless, you don't even have to like the other person. It's just about fun. We'll talk about why we're so attracted to that in just a minute. But that's what's been happening. Sex is what it is. It's nothing. It's nothing. But Paul won't let us go there. He insists that sex is about God. And here's how he does it. If you look down at verse 13 and in the middle of the passage and at the end, Paul does this repeatedly. He keeps connecting your body and your sexuality and your physicality with Jesus, which are things that you never connect together and I never connect together. We just don't think this way. We think that there's this big dividing wall. I have my RUF time and my church time and my soul and my spirit and my heart. 
And I've got everything else over here. My sex life, my relationships, whatever. Uh, My body, my working out. Uh, And Paul is saying, no, 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 there is no line. Our bodies, our souls, our genitals, everything is connected to Jesus. Everything is about Jesus. He's the center of all reality. So, of course, it stands to reason even sex, even orgasms are about Jesus. We'll get to how. In verse 13, he says this. Um, He says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord who made it. And the Lord is for the body. In verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are united, joined the way a leaf is to a tree, to Jesus Christ? That's what he roots this. How then could you go and unite yourself to a prostitute if you're already united? Your body, in some mysterious way, is a part of Jesus. If you're a Christian. He says the same thing further on. He, he, he drives his point even and more. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. And in verse 19, don't you know that your bodies, your physical body, this thing, this flesh, your body, your physical body is a temple for the Holy Spirit. There's something profoundly spiritual about your body. Christianity alone holds this. No other religion has such an exalted view of the body and therefore such an exalted view of sex. But Paul says your body is just as spiritual as your soul. Your body has just as much to do with Jesus as your heart or your mind or your soul has to do has to do with Jesus. Now, I understand this is still a little bit fuzzy about how sex is about Jesus, but at least we're a little bit further than we were a few minutes ago. Now we know God says your body and sex is connected to Jesus somehow. That's further than we might have been a few minutes ago. So what does it mean that sex is about God and not about sex? What does it mean that sex isn't about sex, but it's about God? Well, were you here two weeks ago when we talked about marriage? We said that marriage is a signpost, not substance. Marriage is like the big brown sign in Arizona that says Grand Canyon next exit. Marriage itself isn't the Grand Canyon. Sex is the same way. Sex is an incredible signpost, uh, an incredibly pleasurable signpost that God specifically engineered to bring great joy and pleasure to his people. But it's still a signpost. And if you camp at a signpost thinking you're at the destination, at best, you will be desperately disappointed. And I think this this will take a while for the disappointment to sink in. You'll be deceived for a long time. You'll pursue and chase after all these things. But eventually you'll end up exactly where John Mayer ended up. Uh, John Mayer, especially 10 years ago, could have slept with any woman in the world and did sleep with most women in the world by his own admission. And in his, his infamous Playboy interview from about five or six years ago, he confessed to his interviewer, I don't even bother with sex anymore because... To bother with sex means you have to bother with a woman and you have to bother with her emotions and all her texts afterwards. He says, what I do now is awesome. He said, in the comfort of my own home, in the safety of my own fantasies, masturbation is all I do. Because I don't even have to get tangled up in other people's lives. You talk about a guy who is camped out at a signpost thinking it's supposed to be stirring his soul more than it is. And he's out of options. That's at best 
That's best case scenario. If, if our lives become about sex, if sex becomes all about sex, that's it. Worst case scenario is what Paul says in the very opening verses that always cause us to pay attention. You say, explain this a little more. Worst case scenario, if you camp out at the signpost instead of driving on to the thing it's pointing to, you never get to the destination. Which in this case is the Lord God himself. This is why Paul says, he's saying, signpost campers, in verse 9 and 10, do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. The sexually immoral, adulterers, idolaters, men who have sex with other men, will not inherit the kingdom of God. They won't get to the destination because they've made their lives all about the sign and not the substance. They're camped beneath the signpost. And Paul warns the tragedy of a person, a person's soul dying right at the foot of the sign that's pointing them to life. Just the tragedy of that. And he would not have us die there either. And so he says these things. But one more time, how is the sex supposed to be about God and not just about itself, not just about sex? How are a husband and wife in that moment of having sex supposed to be thinking of or remembering Jesus in that moment? This is how sex is the ultimate giving of yourself. I would argue that sex is a, is a more profound giving of yourself to another person than even dying for another person. If I lay my life down for you, I get one shot at that, right? I get one, one day, one moment in time where I get to lay it all down for you. But in sex, it's a repetitive, regular giving all of who you are to another person for their pleasure and for your pleasure. But you think about this moment. All of your mind is there. In that moment. And should be. All of your emotions are there in that moment. And should be. All of your spirit. All of your soul is there. And should be. And Paul is saying all of your body is there. And should be. It is the only whole person. All of me. Giving of myself to another person. There is nothing else like that. Where you can give all of your humanity. To another person. And be able to do it the next day too. And the next day and the next day. And so this should be stirring your mind a little bit more of how sex is about Jesus and his people. It is a sign that points to that intimacy, that oneness. Paul keeps saying united, 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 married, one, tied together, attached at the hip. It's a, it points to that oneness that Jesus has with his people, that intimacy, that nakedness, that freeness that we have with God through Jesus. Sex is a shadow that points to that greater reality. It's a heck of a shadow. God is so kind and so generous. But imagine if it's just a shadow, what would the reality, the substance be like of our intimacy, our relationship with God, this whole person God giving all of himself to his people. And did you hear the song we just sang, Morgan talked about? Jesus, I, my cross have taken. How much of you does God ask for? How much of you does God demand? All of your mind, all of your strength, all of your soul, all of your heart, all of your body, all of your time, everything. Does this make sense? The parallel between sex between two people and divine intimacy that we share with God. Tim Keller says, this is why 
God forbid, sexual immorality. Because sexual immorality, hooking up, porn, masturbation, anything, it's, a, it's, it's acting out a lie in this way. He says, the Bible says don't unite with someone physically unless you're also willing to unite with the person emotionally, personally, socially, economically, and legally. Don't become physically naked and vulnerable to another person without becoming vulnerable in every other way, which is only safe when you have given up your freedom and bound yourself in marriage. That is the context where sex is safe. We'll talk a lot next week about the ways where sex has become unsafe outside of that context, how it cuts us, how we bleed from it. But see just here how sex is this whole person giving of yourself to another. And Keller says what Paul says that happens to a person that you have pledged publicly before God and other people to be with and never leave because sex says, I will never leave you. I will always be here and I love you as you are. Um, When we pursue other avenues of fulfilling that, we say the opposite. We say, I won't be here tomorrow. Um, We say, I'm not in it for the long haul. We say, you're not safe. Okay, so before we push on to the last two quick points, this is one of the key reasons God made you sexual. This is one of the reasons he loaded your body with hormones. It's the reason why he put the nerve clusters where he did, so that you, in marriage, might experience just a taste of the ferocity, the fierceness, the passion of Jesus' love for those he's redeemed. I bet you your mind's never gone there before to equate sex with another person to the way Jesus relates to and moves towards his people. But that's what the Bible says. And so sex is not about sex. It's about God. And if it's used that way, it can be a very constructive spiritual and relational blessing. But as alluded to by our points, the damage has already happened. The wrecks already happened, right? With that illustration of how God finds us sexually, the impacts have occurred. We're a mangled mess, all of us. And so this isn't just us theorizing about what sex could be. What has sin done to sex? Augustine, who I know some of you are reading right now, you're reading the Confessions. Augustine says in the Confessions, sin bends me in on myself. He says we are created to be outward-focused beings towards God and towards you. But sin turns me in on myself. And so all of life, including sex, becomes all about me. He calls it incurvatus se, which means turned in on self. That's what sin has done to us in every facet of our humanity. It's made you all about you and me all about me. And so it's made sex, not just about sex, but sex all about me. Paul says this in verse 12 and 13. He's imagining this kind of imaginary critic who might be raising objections to what he's saying. And he's like, I know my rights. I have the right to do anything. It's my body. It's my sexuality. It's my intimacy. It's my life. Get your hands off of it. Paul's like, no, no, it's not your body. It's not your sexuality. It's not your sex. It's not your relationship. It's all the Lord's. Sin has turned you in on yourself, and you've made everything about you. When you have two people in an sexual encounter, and they're both in it for themselves, you don't have any wonder why there's so much damage that comes from this. Sex becomes all about us. And when sex becomes all about me, sexual immorality flourishes. It blossoms. 
And then this is where we get a little bit closer to home. Uh, when, when sex becomes all about me, sexual immorality blossoms and it, it flames. And this is why we say as well, sexual immorality isn't about sex. Here's my question to you. I'd never thought about this till today. What if the root of our sexual struggles isn't sex or lust? What if the root of our sexual struggles is boredom? Sounds like it might resonate. Uh, if your attempts at any whatever kind of sexual pursuit you're on, whether it's porn or masturbation or fantasizing or mentally doing stuff with people or whatever else, whatever form that takes, could it be that the impulse behind that isn't just animalistic sex or love? What if it's boredom? What if it's self-worship? Those two things are connected. Uh, that's the question. Could it be those things? Could it be boredom with God? Just a deep dissatisfaction. Just a deep, man, this isn't doing anything for me. Bored to tears with the Lord God. And that is why sex that was designed to be pointing us to him, carrying us to him, now becomes all about us and the next thrill we can get out of it. The next spark we can find to give us a little bit of life to jumpstart our lethargic souls. Has sex become that for you? Whatever form it takes in you right now. We're all broken. Has sex become that for you? A little pick-me-up, a little release. When we make sex all about us and our momentary urges, we get bored. And we have to seek an ever-increasing stimulus to keep us happy. Um, Dorothy Sayers is an old English writer. She is a crime novelist, actually. But she was a Christian, and she was incredibly insightful. She says this. Um, she's trying to prove this point that, tr- uh, that worshiping ourselves, surprise, isn't as captivating as worshiping and seeing the eternal, infinite God in all of his glory. Imagine that. Me worshiping me isn't as exciting as the people in heaven right now who are bowed down saying Hosanna in the highest. And they've been saying that for millennia because they can't get over how majestic and beautiful and awe-inspiring the Lord God is. Imagine that if my life becomes all about me, I get bored. Dorothy Sayers adds to that. She says, in times of disillusionment like our own, when philosophies are bankrupt and life appears without hope, men and women may turn to lust just, be- just out of sheer boredom and discontent, trying to find in it some stimulus which is not provided by the drab discomfort of their mental and physical surroundings. The mournful aspect of 20th century pornography and promiscuity suggests that we have reached one of those periods of spiritual depression where people go to bed because they have nothing better to do. Boredom. We've reached one of those times of spiritual depression and lethargy that people go to bed because they have nothing better to do. They're bored to tears with life. In other words, she says, the regrettable moral laxity of our time, which respectable people complain about, may have its root cause not in lust at all, but in one of the other sins of society. She's talking about this self-worship. What if these struggles aren't about just sex? What if, what if I don't struggle with sexual temptation because I'm horny or because I have hormones or because God created me to be a sexual being? What if I struggle with these things so much harder because I'm bored with God and life's become all about me? 
This is why if porn is a temptation that you're familiar with, you know how creative you've had to get with your Google searches just to be interested. The stuff you looked at last week doesn't do it anymore. It's the next thing. The next word that makes your heart beat in two weeks from now won't make your heart beat at all. The next thing that you don't care whether it pops up on the accountability report of your friend because you're numb again. You got to have the next. This is how we get to places and stand there and say, how did I ever get here looking at this? We are bored to tears with reality and with God. That's how we got there. Um, Ann and I have heard more and more stories of people our age, thankfully not any close friends yet, but acquaintances of our close friends who have had affairs. If this has ever happened to you, and I know it's happened to some of your parents, husbands and wives don't leave each other and have sex with another person because their spouse isn't attractive. Because everybody I know who's had an affair, their wife or their husband was very good looking. They were bored. They were bored with God. They were bored with their wives. They were bored with sex because everything had become about them. Make life about you. All the color drains out. It's black and white. And so placing ourselves at the center of reality or sexuality will make a big, boring mess, even out of sex. God is the only person for whom the law of diminishing returns doesn't apply. Law of diminishing returns says the more I enjoy this product, the less it satisfies me. If I have one Coke, I kind of want another Coke. But if I have two Cokes, I really don't want a third Coke. And if I have three, I definitely don't want a fourth. God is the only being for whom that law doesn't apply. The more you see of him, the more you taste of him, the more you get of him, the more you want him all the more. It's a spiral towards life. It has a gravitational pull towards it. It's called worship. Worship that pulls you to a new place, to a new view of God. And God is infinite, and so there's no shortage of what he shows us of himself. And so let me just say this. Sexual immorality is our desperate attempt to be amazed in a world that's turned black and white. Sexual immorality is an attempt to be amazed because we're not amazed by God anymore. We're not amazed by the gospel anymore. G.K. Chesterton said, every man who's ever knocked on the door of a brothel was really looking for God. A guy named Michael Cusick updated the terminology, said every man or woman who surfs the web for porn is surfing for God. You're looking for the divine. You're looking for the spark for your soul. And we can't find it. Which means we're desperate. Which is good news at our final point. Sex is about redemption. Sex isn't about sex. Sexual immorality isn't about sex. It's about boredom. It's about self-worship. But redemption is about sex. Sex is about redemption. In two ways. The first, sex points to the love that Jesus gives to those he's made alive. Sex is a picture of the ferocity and the severity of the Lord's love and commitment with his people. But the second thing is this. Redemption covers whatever sexual history, whatever baggage, whatever present shame, present struggles, present tangled messes you're stuck in. This redemption from the Lord releases you from that. Redemption means recycled or repurposed or restored or renovated, put back together again. And you, Paul says, 
belong to another now. Paul says in verse 11 something amazing. We'll get to talk about this a little bit more depth next week. But he says, after he lists all of these things and says, these people aren't going to heaven. Then he says, these specific things, the sexually immoral, the idolaters, those who worship themselves, or adulterers, or homosexuals, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11, and that was what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Meaning that Jesus meets the very people in the beginning of this passage who have camped out at the bottom of the sign. He meets them there and he says, hey, do you want to see what this sign points to? And he breathes life into you. How do I know this? What kind of you, what you did Jesus find dead at the bottom of that sign? It was the dirtiest, most shameful version of you. How do I know? Because Paul says you had to be washed. Paul says you had to be sanctified. You had to be justified in order for God to be in a relationship with you. Which means, how did Jesus find you? He found you dead in a wreck of your own making and of my own making. And he justified you there. He sanctified you in that condition. He purified you in that condition. And so again, you see how sex points to Jesus' love for his people. Jesus isn't an adolescent teen surfing the internet for a good-looking bride that he can use for his own pleasure. Jesus marries the ugliest, the worst, the most shame and guilt-ridden, and he makes her lovely. And sex is a picture of Jesus being attracted to the black swan, not the beautiful one. Not because of something in us that makes us attractive, but because something in him makes him drawn to those who need him most. That is how sex points to Jesus. And if sex is about redemption, it means sex can get better for you. I know none of you all here are married except for me and Anna tonight. But you're thinking about this stuff. You're sexual beings now. You don't wait to get married till you're a sexual being. Um, Sex can get better for you. Sexual immorality can get better for you. um, Because sex is about redemption. I want to end with this quote. As we think about how God has come to redeem us in the worst places of our sexual brokenness. A guy named Mike Mason said this. It's short. He says uh, about how God has reclaimed sex for himself. He will not let it escape. He insists that it be about him. Mike Mason says, Imagine what anguish it must cause Satan to have to stand aside and watch as married couples discover real pleasure, real closeness, and real love on territory which normally belongs to him. Saying how frustrating it must be for the devil to stand by as God knits husband and wife together in nakedness without shame, in love without leaving, in safety, in beauty, in glory. Oh, how it must rattle him to see that this territory, this terrain that he used to lay claim to, Jesus has redeemed and made good and clean again. And he makes it good and clean for you. Next week, we'll continue the conversation. Lord Jesus, we thank you that your love for us is greater than we could imagine. You bend over all the time. You say it. You say that you're... 
You say that we can't fathom the height, the depth, the love, the width, the breadth of your love for your people. And sex is just one picture of, it's just a tiny taste of what that love is. And if it is as amazing and good and pleasurable as it is, we long to learn more and more what it is like to share deep, pleasurable, euphoric intimacy with you, our lover and our God. We ask this in your name. Amen.